0: If you would, please stand with me for a reading of the Word of God. If you're using one of the blue Bibles in the back of the chair, we're on page 559. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Uh, Those Bibles are there. If you do not have a Bible and you would like one, they are our gift to you. Please feel free to take one. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, And by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Thus saith the word of the Lord.
1: Once more, pray with me that we would hear the word of the Lord this morning. God, we thank you for this passage, the passages also that we have that Paul is describing from the Gospels. Lord, we thank you that here we have represented to us, God, the the central moment historically, theologically, significantly, the the central moment of all of our lives, of all of human history. And so, God, we pray that the familiarity of our uh, our knowledge of these events would not dull us to hearing again the word of the Lord. God, we pray that you would cause us to God here and that we would, you would do a work in us to make us long to know the power of your resurrection, to know what it means, what, why it matters, what the benefit to those who have believed in your name is, Lord. We just pray that you would open our eyes, God, to see facets and aspects of your resurrection that we may never have seen before. And those that are familiar, God, that there would be a freshness to them, Lord, that would just reinvigorate our faith. And so, Lord, we ask that. Lord, I pray for myself as your weakest vessel, Lord, that you would enable me to communicate clearly, God, that you would enable me to communicate authoritatively and that you would enable me to to communicate accurately and i pray for every ear into which this message will be sent lord and to every heart that receives it lord that they would they would have a a, a that, that that would be the issue that they'd be receptive of what is said and so i thank you for this lord we give you this morning we thank you for the baptisms we thank you for the worship and now we thank you for the word and pray that you would direct our attention to all the depth of it in jesus name we pray Amen. You can be seated. So the verse that Jared read to us this morning, um, it asserts three truths about the resurrection. First, it, it asserts that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not rooted in mythology. It's not rooted in the fanciful imaginations of men who are carried off by their own kind of spiritual subjective thinking. But on the contrary, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is rooted, and this is Paul's assertion, in historical fact. Second, this text declares that this event was biblical. In other words, this event had been detailed in the scriptures long before it ever occurred. And lastly, this passage tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant thing that has ever happened in human history. And so this gives us great courage, great curiosity as we approach this passage. And I want to examine each one of these revelations, historical, Biblical significance, I want to examine each of those in turn, and I want to make my defense for the truthfulness of what Paul has written. And I pray, just as I did a moment ago, that you'll have a fuller and a richer understanding of what happened three days after Christ was crucified in Jerusalem. Now, what is the goal of this? The goal is that you will take a deeper knowledge of God and turn it into, or by the, an action of the Holy Spirit, that you'll turn it into a deeper worship of God. That you will stand amazed at the Savior. Because let me tell you something, for those of us who live in a world where people like to to take my, the minutia of theology just so they can argue on Facebook or Twitter about it, the, the reason that we ever get a heightened knowledge of God is so that we will become worshipers. Second Peter 318 emphasizes this. As Peter tells those to whom he is writing, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be both glory now to the day of eternity. Amen. Growing in right knowledge brings glory to God through Christ. So to deny Any of these three ideas that we're going to talk about tonight, uh, this morning rather, this historical, biblical, and significant aspects of the resurrection is to embrace ideas that are at best sub-Christian and at worst decidedly un-Christian. And why is this? Well, quickly rejecting the the resurrection's historicity is to reject the very basis for Christianity at all. There's a Large progressive movement of of uh, you know kind of a liberal Christianity that th- that that, that kind of eliminates anything supernatural from the idea of the uh, from what they read in the scriptures and they say it's okay if Christ really didn't rise physically as long as he's risen in our hearts and to that I reached deep into my knowledge of the Greek language and I use this word baloney that is not true Christ. Must be risen, Paul says, or your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins. What does Paul, what did the apostles say about this? In Acts chapter 3, Peter says this, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning everyone away from you, from, uh, every one of you away from your wickedness. The whole basis of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any benefit to be derived from the gospel requires that Christ has risen. So without the historical reality of Christ's death and resurrection, we are left with absolutely no reason to celebrate today. We have nothing but a meaningless, secular, commercialized holiday that serves as nothing more than an excuse to wear pastels and paint eggs and eat chocolate. But today... On the contrary, the church all over the world floods the earth with worship, knowing that today isn't just vaguely about Jesus, but it's an opportunity to look back to the empty tomb and confidently declare, He is not here, for He has risen. Similarly, To deny the biblical foundation for Christ's resurrection is to display total ignorance of the content, the central message, and the main point of Scripture. Because the Old Testament predicts His resurrection repeatedly, and the New Testament lays out all the theological implications of that historical reality. What did Paul say? He said all this took place according to the Scriptures. If you remove... The resurrection from history, you don't reduce Jesus to just a good moral teacher. You actually reduce him to a lying, manipulative monster. The prophets foresaw his rising. He told his own disciples on three separate occasions that he would rise. Uh, the apostles, all of them went to their deaths insisting that he rose having every opportunity to recant, they never recanted. All scripture rises or falls on the fact of the resurrection. Therefore, if it didn't happen, everything we read, everything that I proclaim from this pulpit, everything we believe, everything we practice is mere vanity if Christ is not risen. Lastly, if the resurrection isn't the most significant thing, if it's just a thing, if it's, if it's not the most significant thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, then every call made to repentance should be seriously questioned. Every plea for total submission, for total allegiance to Christ should be absolutely ignored. Instead, we should devote ourselves, find out what the more important thing is and devote ourselves to that, to whatever matters more than the resurrection of Christ and take that thing on as the greater priority. But guess what? Paul said these things that I'm telling you are of first importance. They are the most significant thing. But it's our conviction as Christians, true believers, that some important, more important thing does not exist. The resurrection of Christ is the sun around which all human history passed present and future eternally revolves. It's the central reality both in heaven and on earth. Throughout all time and all eternity it's at the core of the unending worship that is offered to the sun by saints and angels alike forever and ever world without end. It's far more important, I shouldn't even have to say this it's far more important than anthropomorphic rabbits or jelly beans or honey roasted hams it's our life It's our breath, it's our confidence, it's our hope, it's the comfort for our past and the hope for our future. I want to examine, therefore, these three realities that I'm I'm discussing with you just a little bit closer this morning. So when we talk about, in case there's any doubt, when we talk about the historical fact of the resurrection, what we mean is, without shaming or uh, without uh, uh, being ashamed of this or without any nuance to it, we believe with all our hearts that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, who had been publicly killed and buried three days previous, was restored to life and physically exited his own tomb. The text tells us, Paul tells us on this point of historical uh You know, verity of this event. He tells us that as many as five thousand, five, five hundred people at one time witnessed this and that as many, and that many of those people were still alive at the time of Paul's writing. And why is that important? Because they were able to, to verify or deny this. They could have said, well, that's not exactly how it happened. Paul is putting his own testimony on trial by telling these people, go find them. There's five hundred people that saw this. And this is crucial. Here's why. It's absolutely crucial that we don't ever uh, stand in shame or let the, the historicity of the, the resurrection slip from our fingers because there is not one single world religion that has anywhere near as much basis in historical fact. All, of, all world religions, all false religions, are based on subjective dreams, subjective visions, Voices and visits from spirits and angels that are all completely unverifiable. Can I give you a a great example of this? For example, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. If you know how Mormonism originates in human history... He claims to have been led to these hidden golden plates by an angel that no one else saw or no one else could see. And these plates had a writing on them in a language that no linguist had ever heard of and that only Joseph Smith could translate. He was specifically uh, instructed by the angel not to show these plates to anyone. Shall I go on? This sounds legit, right? But Christianity, well, how do we contrast Mormonism and Christianity? Christianity was born into a world that multitude when a man that multitudes saw brutally murdered appears to hundreds of people, not in a vision, not in a dream, but standing in the midst of their day to day realities. Nothing was done in secret. Everything was open to, to uh, you know just universal examination. Throughout the years, there have been many materialists, those who reject the miraculous, reject the supernatural on any level, and they have completely dismissed the biblical accounts of the resurrection. But many of them who have rejected the biblical accounts of the resurrection have fallen, uh, you know, prey to the truth of the resurrection. What do I mean by that? Most of you, some of you might know the names uh, you know Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell—they're more modern examples of people who set out. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, Josh, I believe, was a, a philosophy student. Uh, Lee Strobel was a journalist, and they set out to prove or disprove, rather, the resurrection. And both of them wound up being converted and following Christ. Simon Greenleaf was a accomplished attorney in the 19th century who literally they still use his uh, his his textbook in law schools now. He literally wrote the book on how evidence works and how we can judge evidence as credible. Well, he was a complete agnostic and he examined the uh, the resurrection as an agnostic and guess what happened? He wound up being converted and turned his book to disprove the resurrection on a on a book of apologetics to prove the resurrection because of, of how that worked. An apologetic approach, and here's what, when we're talking about the, 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 this being biblical, I want to point this out to you though. An, abo- an apologetic approach like Greenleaf's or Strobel's or McDowell's makes for absolutely fascinating study. You can get lost in it. And we can consider other evidential factors to prove the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the most, you know, compelling that I can think of is that all the apostles, as I said earlier, died under extreme persecution, and yet, having every chance to recant, they never did. They never recanted their testimony of the resurrection. Um, but but what I want to point out to you is that as Christians, we have a much better reason to believe we don't need a green leaf or mcdowell or a or you know a strobel we believe because the bible tells us these things are true and that should have gotten a huge response from you because do we trust you know our our deductive reasoning alone or do we trust that everything god says is true The Bible contains the very words of God, and it tells us that God is not a man that he should lie. So the apologetic and historical evidence for the resurrection remains compelling. You should read those books, but we have the more sure word of the Holy Spirit himself. He has told us that these things are true. So what evidence do we have that the resurrection is biblical? I'm not referring to the fact that the Bible reports the details of Christ rising. We know if we've read through the Gospels, we know that that's in there. We know it's in the Bible. But we can assure ourselves, uh, but, but, or rather can we assure ourselves, that uh, the, the Christ rising from the dead wasn't just God's last-minute plan that was implemented in an emergency that he couldn't foresee. What do we do? They just killed Jesus. i got to raise him. No. This idea of the resurrection is all through the Old Testament. The very first promise of the gospel, in fact, contains imagery of both Christ's suffering and his victory. Genesis 3.15, first promise in the Bible after the, uh, of the gospel, right after you know Adam and Eve fell, God says this, I will put enmity between you speaking to the serpents and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head. In other words, another translation of that says he will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see the image of the cross there, but we see that ultimate victory will belong to Jesus. But it gets more specific and clear in later messianic prophecies. We see greater details about Christ's triumph after tremendous suffering and even death in the outpouring of God's wrath we sang about this morning. Isaiah 53, the whole chapter is about the suffering and resurrection of Christ. Verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Well, what is that pointing to? What's that pointing to? Anybody? The cross. The suffering of Jesus. But watch this. It turns right in the middle of the sentence. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Who are his offspring? We are. We're the children of God because of grace. And he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Whose hand? The one that was crushed. The one that was brought to grief. We see in this passage both his crushing and the prolonging of his days. It gets more specific. In Psalm 22, David vividly describes the piercing of his hands and feet. He describes how the soldiers cast lots for his clo- clothing right under the cross. And he, he also says, you know, as he describes all the sufferings in, in dramatic detail, he says, for he has not despised or abhorred the, the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. And when it to get more specific? Psalm 1610. The, the, the psalmist says this, as speaking prophetically. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to the grave, you or let your holy one see corruption. Now, in that this is an important passage because in Acts two thirty one, Peter specifically cites this psalm as relating clearly to Christ's resurrection. And we could cover many, 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 many more examples. But undoubtedly, Christ's resurrection is the cardinal reality of both testaments of Scripture. Lastly, it's imperative that we recognize the resurrection as the high point, the epicenter, not only of the whole of of scripture or the whole of human history, but more than that, the entirety of cosmic history. What do I mean? It's to say that nothing more important has ever happened, ever happened since God created the universe, nor will it ever It's crucial that we understand this. As believers, we tend to emphasize the atoning death of Christ in our singing, our witnessing, our preaching, and rightfully so. I'm not creating a new doctrine here. Were it not for Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we could have no offer of mercy. We could have no offer of forgiveness. We could not expect to be reconciled to God. We could not have any hope of eternal life. Yet without, now listen carefully, some of you may have never considered this, without Christ's resurrection, his crucifixion, his death, would be utterly devoid of effect or meaning. The crucifixion is made what it is because Jesus rose. The crucifixion is made redemptive by the fact that Jesus rose, the fact that God made Jesus alive again, that death could not hold him, that his final resting place became his temporary resting place by the power of God. Without the resurrection, his death might have been that of a martyr. It might have seemed sacrificial or inspiring, but it could have never been redemptive, regardless of his moral life, of his miraculous works, or his authoritative teaching. The the, the crucifixion of Christ would be emptied of all meaning, were it not for the fact that Jesus rose. Many men and women throughout history have died nobly for good causes they die in sacrificial ways, in wars and other other things, martyrdoms, for the love and the good of the country, for the love and the good of their families, or for truth, or even of the church. But Christ died. Here's the key difference. Christ did not die for, you know, love of country or family or truth or some good cause. Christ died not for a worthy people or a notable cause, but he died out of deep love for his own enemies. Romans 5 clearly describes what I'm saying here. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died not for the winners, but for the losers, for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, A guy, as R.C. Sproul talks about, will throw himself on a hand grenade for his own comrades in war. He will never cross the battle lines and throw himself on a hand grenade for his enemies. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. May I say that again? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The holy died for those who were dead in sin. The only righteous one died for those none of whom were righteous. And so we should, we're should. we not pitting the resurrection against the crucifixion. As we've sung for, for, you know, centuries, we should cherish the old rugged cross for sure. But we have to realize that the bloody cross is made beautiful and, and crucifixion Friday becomes good Friday because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, as Christian parents, and you saw the result of this today, children that were well taught, well catechized by their parents. Both of them have great parents and they taught them and they, they led them to, um, to Christ and prayed that they would come to saving faith and the Holy Spirit would do a work. And so we begin as Christian parents, we tend to begin to talk to our children about Christ's salvation very early and rightfully so again. And because of this, if you got up from the service right now, you went back there into The area where the children are being ministered to, the vast majority of them, if you were to ask them, some of them very, very young, if you say, hey, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Most of them will give you the same three-word answer, for our sins. That's great. That's called catechism. That's like teaching them basic truths of the gospel. They're learning. They're getting it. But if you were to ask them on the way home from church today, hey, why did Jesus have to rise from the grave? What do you suppose they would say? And have we as parents done as much work teaching our kids the implication of the resurrection as we have the implications of the cross? What would they say? Let me ask you bluntly if that question were posed to you. Why did Christ have to rise from the dead, what would you say? So there's no way in the remaining time that I have that I can cover this topic exhaustively. Uh, But I do want to talk about some of the reasons briefly, understanding that each one of these reasons could be a sermon or even a sermon series on their own. But when you're confronted with the question, if you've never considered it, why did Christ have to rise from the dead, I got good news for you. The scriptures do not leave us in the dark on this point. It's not a matter of speculation. It's not a matter of hoping and figuring it out. The Bible tells us. Does that give anybody in here some relief? Are you glad to know that? The first thing it tells us, that though Christ certainly died to bear the penalty for our sins, he was resurrected for the purpose of restoring us to right relationship with the Father. Romans 4 beginning in verse 24, says righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead the Lord Jesus, or Jesus our Lord. Verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. You're seeing exactly what I'm saying there. The the cross without the raising would have had no impact. Christ died as our substitute, having made atonement for all of our sin, past present, future, and by his death on the cross, he he died as the Lamb of God. As John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he was raised to show us something amazing, that God who received his offering, who had received his sacrifice, had perfectly accepted his blood payment. Our justification is the reward of Christ's suffering. He has purchased a people by his suffering. In Psalm 28 the father says to the son ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage the ends of the earth your possession In Revelation, we see this promise fulfilled as gathered around his throne. There's myriads and myriads of redeemed worshipers from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. This is the picture of the fullness of the justification made effective, not just by his death, but by his resurrection. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, together by grace alone. Secondly, we're told that Christ rose not only that we could be justified, but so that we could be sanctified, so that we could be set free from the present bondage of sin. Romans chapter 6. Pastor David read the earlier portion of this passage earlier today. Romans chapter 6. We know that Christ Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin. Why? Because we died with Christ. But if we died with Christ, we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. What joy could any of us possibly find in a life in which, though we were forgiven, we were still chained to a, purpose, a purposeless life. Still very much in bondage to sinful habits, sinful thoughts, sinful attitudes, sinful desires. What we, what we need to understand more and more is that sin, even the sins that we all still struggle with now... The reason we say that evidence, true evidence for Christianity is the, the progressive cleansing and, and, and freedom from those sins. Because what we need to recognize, if we're truly believers, is that sin is death. There's nothing to be gained by it whatsoever. And this is why we should hate sin. We should cry out to God for freedom from our, our, our sins that we still find ourselves practicing often. But because we're hardwired to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, it it requires a work of the Holy Spirit. And, And it requires our union with Christ to cause us to hate our depravity and to flee from actual sins. And where does the resurrection come into this? Well, it gives us tremendous confidence as we recognize that Christ, having been raised, forever lives. And he lives in eternal intercession for us. And and that his eternal intercession is cleansing us and keeping us by his redemptive power and by his ultimate authority. He is shaping us. He's restoring us. He's carrying us towards the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Romans 8.34 makes this point very clear. Who is to condemn? Who's going to wag your finger either on earth or in hell? Who is going to condemn you for your sins? Christ is the one who died and he did it for you and I. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What great comfort comes from that fact. Amen. Next, the resurrection. And vindication of Christ's sacrifice shows us that having taken on uh, the sins of humanity and, and, and paying for their sins, Christ is uniquely qualified and singly appointed by God to render judgment on the world at his second coming. Paul talks about this in Acts 17. He says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by how? By raising him from the dead. He says, this is my man. This is the one who will be entrusted. So despite the impious ravings of the Roman Catholic Church, Christ will never ever suffer again. Amen. When the physical realm next lays eyes on Christ, they will see him glorified. They will see him displayed in all of his holiness. And what I assure you of, no matter what kind of depictions you see of an emaciated Christ dying on a cross, He will not be carrying a cross anymore. But He will be carrying a sword for judgment of this entire earth. That's what, that's how we will see Jesus next. And you can rest assured that when that day comes, there is not a hiding place to be found from His burning wrath, except for that which can be found as we call out to him for his grace that he freely offers now. So cry out for it before it's too late. Don't play games with your soul. Now, I could easily list out many, many, many many more implications of the resurrection, but just allow me just one, one more. The physical resurrection of Christ is God's promissory note That all who trust in him will also someday rise physically from their own graves and receive a glorified body like Christ has received. And we will one day, right now I, I mentioned sanctification, how we still all, the best of us, still struggle with sins and habits and things that we all hate and we're asking God to give us freedom. But one thing I want you to understand is someday you will be fully saved. You will be saved completely in your soul which includes your thoughts and your habits and your attitudes, and you will be saved in your body, which includes all of your actions. Every part of you is going to be saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ by the last day. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, um, I like to hand out homework. This week, read 1 Corinthians 15. The entire chapter is a a comparison of Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of his saints. Take the time, Maria. It's a relatively long chapter, but take the time and do that. I think you'll get a lot out of it. But Paul has made the argument when people are saying, well, we don't even know if Christ has been raised. We don't know if the Christians are going to be raised. And Paul is responding to that when he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died for as by a man death or came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. I am so hopeful. So much anticipation I have for that day to be just rid of all this that has caused me so much trouble in my, you know, own, you know, traumas and, and, uh, you know, and wickedness and, and, you know, all these things that I struggle with just like you. And someday it's going to be over and I'm going to rise from my grave with a body just like Jesus's to live in eternity with him, glorifying him. The idea of first fruits, when he says Christ is the first fruits, it, it, it indicates that what Christ experienced in his resurrection is a preview of what's in store for believers. There's so much more in store for Christians because of Christ's defeat of death. This morning we've talked about justification. We've talked about sanctification and the glorification and all of these are tied biblically to the idea, to the reality of the resurrection. Now, here's my question. Here's how we apply this message. Here's how we make it practical. If all these things are true, and I'm trusting because I know most of you that you're true believers, you are following Christ. If all these things are true, then why should we not worship and praise him with an almost embarrassing zeal? What more could Christ do for us to garner our total allegiance, our total submission, our complete trust? What more could he do? Why should we sacrifice this day of celebration to the fanciful, the fictional, and the unreal when our confidence is rooted in a historical, biblical, eternally significant event? Our hope lies in the resurrection of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about don't go home this afternoon and have fun with your kids. I, I hope you do. We did with our kids. But never let the weight of the fanciful and the fun ever dethrone Jesus from his glorious uh, uh, throne on his, in his resurrected life. Make sure your kids know that we're not celebrating so you get more candy and a new set of clothes. We're celebrating because Christ the Lord is risen. He is alive. He is returning. He is in control. He is, he is dripping with power. He is covered with authority. He has authority, he says, in, in, uh, Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me. When did he say that? After his resurrection. All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Make sure your children know this. Make sure they know it. And what's the other application? If you're here, and I suspect that you are. And there's nothing in your life that indicates you are following Christ. That he has garnered, as I said, your complete zeal, your total devotion. Your willingness to obey. Maybe you have a religious kind of connection to Jesus. You were raised in church, you've always been in church, but there is nothing that we could look at or you could look at at your life to see that there's been any transformation from the old you to a new you. Well, the second practical application is this. Why would you not choose this day of all days to put your absolute trust in Jesus? He died on a cross not as some you know, noble martyr. He died on a cross in your place. The sin that is going to thrust your soul into hell was placed upon him so that payment might be made for it and he could exchange your sin and give you his righteousness. Why would you not follow a Christ like that? And yet though dead in the grave... Not even that could hold him. The stone was rolled away, the angel stood guard, and he walked right out of his grave. And why, if he died to bring you into right relationship with Christ, to set you free from the burden and the chains of your consistent sinning that always lands you in disappointment if he has died to promise you a future glory that you can never achieve on your own, why would you not lay down your arms, raise the white flag, and follow him today? Why? 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 Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we, God, to say that we thank you for your, for the resurrection of your son seems so empty, God. Because it's not just, we don't need to just write a thank you note. Lord, we need to lay ourselves before you and we need to say you are worthy of everything. You're worthy of all my gratitude. You're worthy of every act of obedience. You're worthy of my breath. You're worthy of making the call of whether I live or I die. You are worthy of everything, God. What other person, whatever other religious scheme of man could give me the promises that you've given me through your resurrection? There is none. There is none. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do in all of us something that we can't do on our own for the unregenerate, for those who have not trusted you. I pray that you would draw them to yourself so that they could experience the benefit of the resurrection. Lord, for those that are living in a false assurance of salvation, I pray that you would you would shake them with the fear of the Lord today and let them know how far they are from you, oh God. God, I pray for those of us who, through the grind of life, though we have a true faith, through the grind of life, have have just uh, been reduced to the lowest form of Christianity—the the the, the uh, God management of our sacrifice. Lord, I pray that you would call us, God, to be like Zacchaeus and empty everything before you, God, and say, Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor power and praise throughout all eternity. God, help us to be have that attitude, not only around your throne someday, but to have that attitude now. You're worthy of it all. You're worthy of everything. And so, Jesus, we glorify you in your resurrection. We glorify you in your intercession. We glorify you in the fact that you are for us and that you are fighting for those who have trusted in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper now. If I could have my communion workers come and help us this morning. Um we want to um just encourage you that that uh you know for those of you that are believers in the Lord Jesus, we want you to come with joy. This is a moment of celebration. This is the sign of our covenant with Christ that was purchased for us through His broken body and split, spilled blood. And, um, but I want to get, and so I want you to come and celebrate. I mean, this is, this is your first Christmas or Easter meal today. And so I want you to come and enjoy it, um, as we celebrate worshipfully what Christ has done on the cross. For the rest of you that I suspect there's some of you here that don't know Christ. Um, I want to just counsel you strongly to just remain in your seat. The Bible says that those who eat and drink of these elements that are reserved for the church, that do so devoid of faith, which is evidenced by repentance, that they actually can drink, eat and drink condemnation to themselves. And we don't want that. But what we want you to know, desperately want you to know, is that we have been and we are praying for you. We pray that you would hear the effectual call of the Holy Spirit calling you to believe, calling you to surrender everything and, and dedicate your life to Christ to receive His salvation and to be made new. And so that's our hope today. And if that, if you are hearing these words and they're touching your heart, come talk to me after church. We can do it privately. And I, I just want to share the good news of, of Christ with you. So you're welcome to do that. For the rest of you, come and receive these elements and then take them back to your seat and we'll, we'll take them together in just a moment. Paul writes for us in First Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now, let's give thanks in a way that is worthy of a resurrected Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you so much, God, for the, the power of God that raised you from the dead. Lord, in the New Testament, your resurrection is attributed to the Father. It's attributed to the Holy Spirit, and it's attributed to you, Lord. We know that your resurrection was an act of the triune God, and we thank you for it, Lord. We thank you that for us we have no fear of death because the chains of death have been broken by our resurrected Lord. And for this, God, let our day be saturated with worship and thankfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One last thing, if you place your hands in a receiving position. I just want to read this benediction over. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great Resurrection Day.